0: This episode is brought to you by Apex Clean Energy, which develops, constructs, and operates utility-scale wind and solar power facilities across North America. Apex's mission-driven team uses a data-focused approach and an unrivaled portfolio of projects to create solutions for the world's most innovative and forward-thinking customers. For more information on how Apex is leading the transition to a clean energy future, visit apexcleanenergy.com. Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Ben Stockdale. yet another awesome episode coming to you live from raleigh north carolina i'm sitting down with one of the strongest voices for wind energy in the country katherine collins we'll be bringing you up to speed on all things wind energy in north carolina breaking down senator harry brown's wind ban and finding out why this clean energy industry might just have the wind at its back first let's start with our policy update At the end of May, the North Carolina Senate unveiled and passed its 2019-2020 budget. This chamber's budget is definitely less encouraging for clean energy than the NC House budget. The House budget, which was released in the beginning of May, included full funding of all three of North Carolina's energy centers, did not include an electric vehicle fee increase, and also included a $300,000 study of North Carolina's offshore wind supply chain and port infrastructure potential for North Carolina's emerging wind industry. More on North Carolina's offshore wind potential later in the show. The Senate budget includes a fee increase for electric vehicles from $130 to $230 and creates a brand new fee for plug-in hybrids at $115. This is all despite a report from the NC Clean Energy Technology Center commissioned by the North Carolina Policy Collaboratory demonstrating that EV drivers are already paying more than their fair share of the gas tax. The Senate budget actually defunds the NC Clean Energy Technology Center, which for the last 30 years has worked closely with partners in government, industry, academia, and the nonprofit community to assist the clean tech industry in North Carolina. The Senate budget also defunds the Center for Energy Research and Technology at NCANT, but maintains funding for Appalachian State's Appalachian Energy Center. We continue to have a close watch on Senate Bill 559, Duke's rate hike bill that includes the multi-year rate plans that allowed the utility in Virginia to over-earn more than $1 billion since 2015. It is yet to move in the House. For more on Senate Bill 559, take a listen to episode 1 of Squeaky Clean, where we get down in the weeds on this bad legislation. Another bad bill we are tracking is Senator Harry Brown's wind ban. Senate Bill 377, which saw movement and major changes this week. As we had expected, Senator Brown brought this bill back to life after it didn't make the May 9th crossover date by introducing an amendment. I'm taking you inside the Senate Finance Committee meeting where the changes were made. Let's
1: go ahead and get started. Welcome to Senate Finance. We're glad to here this afternoon.
0: Let's see what Senator Harry Brown has to say about his amendment. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Basically, what the the amendment does is raises the fee from $3,500 to $4,000, and instead of a full moratorium, it reduces the moratorium to three years. That's right, so Senator Brown's amendment has added a permitting fee increase so that it can move despite not making crossover. And the permanent ban on wind energy projects was replaced with a three-year moratorium. However, in this same meeting, Senator Jim Perry, a co-sponsor on the bill, said the following.
1: Our ultimate goal on this bill is to not have a moratorium. So we want
0: to So, on one hand, you have a fresh amendment from Senator Brown that would create a 3-year moratorium, and in the same meeting, you have Senator Perry saying that their intention is to have no moratorium. The bill passed the Finance Committee and moved into Senate rules the next day.
1: One bill on the um, end of this
0: morning, um, Senate Bill 377, uh, no one... In Senate rules, no changes were made to the legislation, which means that the three-year moratorium stands in the bill. Yeah, all in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed, no. 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 Motion carried. Thank you. Um mm-hmm. The meeting is adjourned. Okay. We'll see if Senator Perry makes good on his word to remove the moratorium, because any ban on wind energy in North Carolina is a direct violation of private property rights, disregards the stringent review process already in place to protect our military, and strips potentially hundreds of millions of dollars in investment into rural North Carolina counties in need of economic development. If you would like to see our full, comprehensive weekly policy update, you can become an NCSEA business member by visiting us online at energync.org. Our guest today has been with the Southeastern Wind Coalition as its president since October 2015. She manages programming and operations across 11 states, working with a wide variety of stakeholders to promote land-based and offshore wind, wind imports, and the region's supply chain assets. Her experience in the wind industry includes working in finance for Boston-based developer First Wind consulting with Vestas R&D to formulate a federal grant funding strategy and a role as business development manager for the Wind Alliance. She has also worked in other renewable energy capacities as an analyst at the Duke University Nicholas Institute and authoring a paper on third-party PPA financing of solar systems for the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Prior to the Southeastern Wind Coalition, she worked for RTI International, where she was the finance lead for two- $30 million plus divisions. In her role at RTI, she led the creation and startup of a new business segment that allowed RTI to win over $30 million in new work during its first year. She's a graduate of Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and Nicholas School of the Environment, where she earned her MBA and Master of Environmental Management with a concentration in energy. Friends of the pod, give it up for today's guest. Catherine Collins. Catherine, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Ben. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, we are so glad to have you on the show. Catherine, can you tell us a little bit about the Southeastern Wind Coalition?
1: I'd be happy to. So, the Southeastern Wind Coalition is a 501c3 nonprofit, meaning we are dedicated to education and outreach on wind energy issues across our 11 state footprint. We cover the states of Virginia, down to Florida, and over to Louisiana plus everything in between. That said, we spend a lot of our time in the coastal states where there is a whole lot more happening on the wind front.
0: I love wind energy. I think it's really cool. What do you think is the coolest thing about wind energy, Catherine?
1: I think the coolest thing about wind energy is just how much clean electricity you can generate on such a small footprint. One of the greatest things about wind energy is you can build a tower. It takes up space in the air, but not on the ground. So farmers can continue to farm, livestock can continue to graze, and uses of that land can continue in the capacity in which they were before the wind farm was there.
0: How close can you get to the base of the wind turbine before you have to stop farming?
1: You can actually farm right up to the base, so they'll put a pad of concrete around the base of the turbine. That's probably takes up about a quarter of an acre, um, and right up to that, you can farm. You are listening to Squeaky, Squeaky Clean.
0: At the same time there were solar panels in the White House, you had an experimental wind turbine in Boone called Mod 1 that was built by General Electric as part of a contract with NASA. It was the first wind turbine in the world to produce 2 megawatts. It was GE's first wind turbine, now they have over 40,000, and its capability was to power 500 homes. The year was 1978, and then President Jimmy Carter's renewable energy research found its way to Western North Carolina. And this way, North Carolina was an early leader on wind energy. Catherine, can you bring us up to wind speed on what happened in North Carolina since these experimental days? And please excuse my bad humor.
1: <laughs> I wish that I was able to produce bad humor. Um, <laughs> it's beyond me. So a lot has happened since then. In nineteen eight I will start with nineteen eighty four when North Carolina passed what is commonly referred to as the Ridge Law. The Ridge Law prohibits any building of towers structures taller than forty feet across North Carolina's mountain footprint. And, and what was the impetus for that? The impetus for that was a condo building on, I believe it's called Sugar Mountain.
0: Yes, I'm familiar with it. A, a
1: concrete structure that I have viewed from afar. It, it It is certainly an eyesore and sticks out, and I can understand why the lawmakers at that time felt that they really needed to do what they could to protect the views that people drive from all over the place and fly to the North Carolina mountains.
0: Do you think that prohibiting wind was an unintended consequence or is this something that was part of the conversation at that time?
1: I do think it was an unintended consequence and in fact the law explicitly exempts wind mills. Now the trouble there is that wind mills are different from wind turbines. Oh. Um, So windmills are used to pump water. Yeah. Wind turbines are used to generate electricity.
0: Right. There
1: are some small wind systems that I've seen, you know, riding up and down the Blue Ridge Parkway. So there are some residential scale wind turbines that clearly have not been flagged as being uncompliant with the law. The ban was put in place to prevent these really large structures. But back at that time, obviously there was this one turbine in Boone, but I think for the most part... It really was intended to prohibit giant, ugly buildings. After the 1984 Ridge Law, which certainly has put a damper on any wind development in western North Carolina, which I recall seeing the wind maps of North Carolina early on in my graduate school days and thinking, oh, wow, Western North Carolina, we've got all this wind. It would be so fantastic if we could actually develop out there, not realizing that there was, in fact, a ridge law that would prevent development out there. In 2010... We started to see some initial development take place in northeastern North Carolina. That was about the time a good friend and pioneer of the North Carolina wind industry, an attorney named Henry Campen, went to Wind Power, the national conference for everything wind, and started talking to developers and saying, hey, back in 2007, North Carolina passed a renewable portfolio standard. So clearly, our state is thinking about renewables we would like for you to come check out Eastern North Carolina. There is abundant land resources. We've got a renewable portfolio standard and a great business climate. Come check it out and see if you want to develop wind in Northeastern North Carolina. That actually produced a few trips to North Carolina by a number of developers who subsequently started leasing land in Northeastern North Carolina And and that really was the start of North Carolina's land-based wind industry. In 2017, we saw our first full build of a wind farm, not only in North Carolina, but really the first large utility scale project anywhere in the southeast. And that's the Amazon Wind Farm U.S. East. So in 2017, that 208 megawatt project became fully operational. And now we can say we have a wind industry in North Carolina.
0: Awesome. So glad to hear that. This farm that you're talking about, 104 turbines, is that correct?
1: Yes, the project contains 104 two megawatt turbines. It spans two counties, Pasquatank and Perquimans counties, which are both in northeastern North Carolina outside of Elizabeth City. You can see them on your way if you're going up to the northern outer banks. Drive by Highway 17 and check those out. But it's a phenomenal project and was in development for a good number of years um, before that project came to fruition.
0: I saw that it could power 61,000 homes a year based on the capacity.
1: That's correct. So it is a significant project by... Wind project standards, and certainly by a first-in-the-state project, it is a large project. And I think that speaks to the economies of scale required to make a project, a wind project, work so well in North Carolina.
0: Senator Harry Brown's wind ban would block all new wind projects in either wholly or in part 66 of North Carolina's 100 counties. The map stretches all the way from the mountains to the coast. It's definitely not the first time that wind energy has been under attack. Catherine, what do we need to know about this attack on wind energy? The
1: first thing that everyone should know is that it is completely unnecessary. The military has in existence a robust, strong process to vet every single wind farm. The Department of Defense Sighting Clearinghouse, their job is to collect the people, information, and knowledge from every single base around a project that could possibly be affected. So the Clearinghouse, hence its name, brings all of these important stakeholders to the table to look at any impact that a wind farm may have on their operations then if there are potential forecasted impacts those impacts can often be mitigated so impacts come in the form of either radar interference or flight path interference and especially when it comes to radar interference oftentimes it can be a matter of upgrading a radar system which these wind farms often pay for you can upgrade the radar systems You can potentially move where certain turbines are located so as to avoid flight paths. Or sometimes turbines are just removed and the size of the wind project is changed or the location is changed in order to ensure that every military base can continue their training and operations and that wind farms do not become a negative impact on the military.
0: So what you're saying is that wind and the military coexist peacefully.
1: Wind and the military absolutely coexist peacefully. And when we have legislators who are working so hard to ban these things, we're talking about infringing on private property rights. This is a legislator saying, I'm sorry, family, that you've owned this land for 100 years with the assumption that you could do these very specific things on that land, including... Farming, developing wind, developing solar, there are so many permissible land uses that have been in existence and that the value of this property is often predicated on that now coming in to say, "Mm, no, we're going to remove this very potentially profitable use just with one swipe of the pen doesn't provide a stable environment where people can purchase property and understand that that property is going to have a certain value. Two other things I would mention. First is that removing the opportunity for counties and landowners to develop wind on their land completely removes one of the largest economic development opportunities that is available to rural counties in eastern North Carolina. These counties are some of the most impoverished counties across the state. And wind is one of the only economic development opportunities presented to these counties that don't otherwise have large manufacturers or new educational opportunities banging down their doors asking if they can come to their county and invest in their county. And here you've got a fantastic industry that is a good neighbor, that is a good corporate citizen knocking on the door and saying, can we invest a few hundred million dollars in your county? Can we become your largest taxpayer? Can we employ the people who live in your county at incredible wages? And you have... Just a few lawmakers who do not want to allow that to happen.
0: How do you talk to county commissioners about their skepticism towards wind energy?
1: I think one of the most important thing that county commissioners and residents can do is go see a wind farm for themselves. And the Amazon Wind Farm U.S. East has given us the opportunity now to be able to say, go get in the car, drive, and actually go look at these things for yourself. I think once people see them, they understand that they weren't nearly as mystifying and scary as somebody may have made them out to be. These projects truly work well with the farming communities. They are so much quieter than most people give them credit for. I have taken a number of folks out to the wind farm in Elizabeth City, and one of the first things that people say is, wow, I can hardly hear them. I thought this was going to be so loud. You can use a normal speaking voice under a wind turbine, directly under a wind turbine. These things work so well with the landscape. People see how the farming operations continue to take place. They see these new gravel roads that have been built through the farms that really help the farmers bring crops out especially during wet and muddy conditions, there are so many improvements that are made to the counties because of wind farms that I think it becomes a pretty straightforward conversation once you can remove the misinformation. And the misinformation is just that. There is a whole lot of misinformation. And often if a county commissioner has a question, it's going to be because they've been fed some form of misinformation. And so what we're saying to county commissioners is, look, this If you have a rural landscape, having a wind farm in your county will be one of the best economic development opportunities that you've ever had available. You have landowner payments. Uh, The Amazon wind farm pays over $600,000 a year to the farmers who own that land. That's every single year, regardless of what they're making on their farm, they are bringing that money in. So it's a stable, steady form of income. You have tax payments. These are county property tax payments, where wind farms are very often the largest taxpayer in the counties in which they're located. And then lastly, you have jobs. These things provide good paying jobs that the Amazon wind farm has 17 full-time employees with an average salary of over $80,000 a year. And most of these jobs do not require a four-year degree. A wind technician can get a two-year degree uh, and come onto these wind farms making a wage that allows them to support a family.
0: That's awesome. And talking about misinformation, let's take a listen to President Trump's recent comments about wind energy. Hillary wanted to put up wind, wind. If you, if you have a windmill anywhere near your house, congratulations, your house just went down 75% in value. <laughs> and they say the noise causes cancer. You tell me that one, okay? <laughs> you know, the thing makes it so... And of course, it's like a graveyard for birds. If you love birds, you'd never want to walk under a windmill because it's a very sad, sad sight. It's like a cemetery. We put a little we put a little statue for the poor birds.
1: It's true. The notion that wind turbines cause cancer is just patently false. I'm not sure where he came up with the noise causing cancer. Even more interesting, but there have been absolutely no studies showing that wind turbines cause cancer in any way, shape, or form. And as for the bird deaths, the Audubon Society is actually supportive of well and smartly sighted wind. Now, when I say smartly sighted, Wind developers go through a rigorous process prior to development where they are doing all kinds of avian and bat studies to ensure that the placement, the siting of the project is not going to be in a... Migratory bird pathway is not going to be near sensitive bat populations. If a wind turbine is sited in an area that is bordering those types of sensitive avian populations, there are so many new technologies that are automated to tell a wind turbine, stop spinning, there are birds in the area, or sometimes. The developers will shut the turbines off at night if there are bat populations flying through. A whole host of of really innovative technologies now that have allowed turbines to sense when birds or bats are in the area. I think a lot of people know this by now, but clearly not enough. The number one killer of birds is house cats. House cats kill between one and a half and three and a half billion, with a B, billion birds each year. Wind turbines are estimated to be responsible for around two to three hundred thousand bird deaths a year. Tall buildings, towers, those types of structures are responsible for millions of bird deaths each year. So, when we really put those things in perspective, the way that Audubon looks at it is that climate change is truly the most important existential threat to birds for the next hundred years, that the most important thing we can be doing right now is anything that reasonably mitigates climate change. Squeaky clean. Lean, lean, lean.
0: Catherine, what's on your policy wish list for win?
1: My policy wish list this year includes a bill that was presented by Holly Grange, representative in the North Carolina House to fund studies that will look at offshore wind. We haven't talked a lot about offshore wind yet, but this one of the reasons that I am excited about this particular policy is that it will help set North Carolina up to be a leader in the offshore wind manufacturing supply chain port infrastructure arena. This bill provides $300,000 for the state to look at our current port infrastructure and how that can be best used in the offshore wind space, as well as look at the supply chain that exists in our state and how that supply chain will be best positioned to provide parts, components, and be scaled up for the offshore wind supply chain coming to the eastern U.S.
0: So yeah, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory found that North Carolina had the largest resource potential of any state on the East Coast, with 297 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity. What do you think the future looks like for offshore wind in North Carolina?
1: I think that the medium to long-term future for offshore wind in North Carolina is very bright. What we're going to see is a strong build-out of offshore wind in the Northeast first. Uh, We've got northeastern states with commitments of 20 to 30 gigawatts of offshore wind. It makes a lot of sense up there. They've got high power prices. They have very limited land in which they can develop wind, land-based wind, solar facilities, and their load centers are right on the coast. So you think about New York City, and you're not really going to be able to site a land-based wind project in close proximity to the city. However, an offshore wind project makes so much sense. So you've got New York with a a commitment to 9,000 megawatts of offshore wind development. Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, so many states in the Northeast making strong and solid commitments through policy as well as Voices of support from state legislatures, from state, um, from governors, etc. So, offshore wind development will really take hold in the Northeast. We expect prices to come down dramatically because right now there is no supply chain in the U.S. All of the components, much of the expertise comes from Europe. So as the U.S. is able to develop more and more offshore wind and those northeastern states really take a leadership role in that development, we are going to see all of that expertise come to the U.S., be developed in the U.S., and live in the U.S. We expect a solid manufacturing supply chain to produce Nacelles, towers, blades all up and down the East Coast with a pipeline of 20 to 30 gigawatts. It really justifies bringing those supply chain companies to the U.S. And that's what we've heard from the equipment manufacturers over and over is you give us a solid pipeline, we will bring these facilities to the U.S., Because it's on the eastern coast, we expect those facilities to be located on the eastern coast, and we expect to see prices come down dramatically. A lot of times we'll hear, well, you know, prices have gotten so low in Europe. And that is true. Prices have gotten very low in Europe, and they will continue, I think, to fall in Europe. But in order for us to get the same kind of pricing, we need the supply chain in the U.S., So you're really starting to see a lot of states recognize that there are going to be billions and billions of dollars in manufacturing investments and starting to fight for those assets. And so we really want to see North Carolina start to fight for those assets and partner with states like Virginia and South Carolina to show that the Southeast is a manufacturing supply chain hub, can be and it can continue the leadership that we've shown in other manufacturing industries into offshore wind.
0: Catherine, what's got you most excited right now?
1: I am most excited about offshore wind right now. I really see that as the next step for the Southeast because there is so much momentum in the Northeast and because offshore wind does come with the economic development that is the offshore wind supply chain. So billions of dollars of manufacturing investments. These components that are used in offshore wind turbines are far too large to be manufactured inland. They cannot be transported on land. So they must be manufactured on the water and then transported on the water, which means ports. This is where port infrastructure comes in. The only place that these things can be manufactured is in the ports. So we've got to start figuring out how we are going to attract portions of the supply chain, manufacture these massive components, and ship them up and down the East Coast to build gigawatts of offshore wind.
0: How does an offshore wind farm compare in size to a land-based wind farm?
1: One offshore wind farm has been developed In the US to date, and that is called the Block Island Wind Farm. It's just three miles off the coast of a small vacation island off the coast of Rhode Island called Block Island. That project has five five megawatt turbines, so it is very small, but I would call that almost a pilot project for the US. The size of the projects that we're talking about are hundreds of megawatts. You really need economies of scale to make offshore wind cost effective so when we're looking at projects now they're starting in the 200 megawatt range but again if you look at what's being developed in europe that's pretty small like we're really going to start to see these projects bump up into the 800 megawatt range that's when you can really bring the prices down and that is what gets utilities and customers and regulators excited about offshore wind
0: Okay, Catherine. Well, that looks like the end of our conversation. You can find the Southeastern Wind Coalition on Twitter at S-E-W-I-N-D-C-O. Catherine, besides the Southeastern Wind Coalition, who's the one person or group everyone listening to this show needs to go follow on Twitter?
1: I wish I were more adept with Twitter but I have finally come around to the 21st century and started listening to podcasts, there you especially go. when I travel. I saved them up and I'm really excited to start listening to Squeaky Clean. Um, it's already in my queue. Nice. The other energy related podcast that I love is the energy gang and I would encourage everybody to listen to the energy gang.
0: Of course, we love the Energy Gang, and not just because Catherine Hamilton gave us a recommendation on the podcast, but because the Energy Gang puts out awesome content. So shout out to Jigger Shaw, Stephen Lacey, and Katherine Hamilton at the Energy Gang. And Katherine Collins, thanks for being on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Ben.
0: Hey, Squeaky Clean listeners, NCSEA needs your help to make this podcast even better. On our website, energync.org podcast, we've created a survey to get to know you better and get feedback on what you would like to see on Squeaky Clean. Again, visit energync.org podcast to complete the survey. Feel free to peruse the rest of our website, including recent reports, upcoming events, and information about clean energy in North Carolina. Like what you see? Consider becoming an NCSEA member. Got questions? Shoot us an email at our brand new address, squeakyclean at energync.org. We'd like to thank this show's sponsor again, Apex Clean Energy. To learn more about Apex, visit apexcleanenergy.com. Thank you for listening to the show and join us next time as we continue to explore the world of clean energy.